Welcome to the Ready Yeti Podcast, where we tell the story of startups in the outdoor sport industry through the voice of their founders. What is going on, Ready Yeti Podcast listeners? Josh Salvo here, host. On today's episode, I am sitting down with the founder of Mission Mercantile, Chuck Bowen. Chuck, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. Hey, Josh, this is going to be fun. Thanks. Yeah, I'm really excited for this. Now, for the listener that may not be familiar with Mission Mercantile, how would you best describe your brand to them? We are a kind of a high quality, high value uh, leather goods brand, uh, pretty, pretty broad. We have over 100 products uh, and we're leather, wax, cotton, canvas, you know, metal hardware, that sort of thing, handcrafted. Uh, and we're a brand that people love because they love vintage inspired things that last longer than they will. That's really interesting. So let's let's talk about the brand specifically, and I guess the origin. Um, so the brand technically started in 2015, but it really has history back really 50 plus years. Uh, I'd love for you to sort of walk through the journey of really getting the brand off the ground. Oh, sure thing. Uh, actually, our history. It's I was talking to one of my uncles a couple of days ago, and it goes back. On both sides of my family, about 150 years, um, we're a we're a family of merchants uh, on my on my dad's side and my mom's side. Uh, you know, those folks owned uh, hardware stores, grocery stores, mercantile stores, and so we're kind of really entrepreneurial from the roots up. Um, I started Mission Mercantile and our factory Blue Artisan Group in 2015. And that was because, um, you know, I, I had this huge love for leather goods starting about a decade before that. Um, back in 2007 or so, I worked with another leather goods factory, uh, brand called Saddleback Leather and built that leather goods business up for about six and a half years, built a factory, and then sold my interest in that factory uh, to my business partner um, in 2014. And, and just took some time, got re-energized, refined my thinking, and then just realized that a lot of people were still seeking us out for manufacturing their leather goods. But also there was a bit of a gap in what I called vintage-inspired you know, leather goods itself. ton of leather goods brands out there now, great companies. We make for about 17 or 18 of them in our factory now. So the inspiration just kind of came from a combination of my family history and all the things I grew up that were authentic to me, my experience for, you know, 10 years or so before that, and just what I thought was a demand in the marketplace for just high quality, high value leather goods. Let's talk about the the manufacturing piece of it. So you're you're based in the San Antonio, Texas area. Mm-hmm. How did you decide Obviously, you, you you were in this business previously, but I, I guess my question is, is, how did you decide that, hey, I'm going to start a manufacturing-based business in the States? Um, we actually have two shops. We have one in Texas, uh, outside San Antonio, and then we have another one in Leon, Mexico. And, and so it goes back to about 2007, 2008, when I was working with the uh, other leather goods brand, just realized, one, um, 
back then there weren't that many leather goods brands that were based in the States um, at all. Manufacturing, uh, you know, own, owning their own manufacturing and that sort of thing. So what, what we really thought then was if someone cares about, nobody cares about your quality as much as you do. And so you need to, you know, build your own stuff and learn how to do that. So that's what, you know, I said about doing is figuring out how to build high quality leather goods, you know, right the first time that would last forever, much longer than I will. Um, I had a background in manufacturing years before I spent about nine and a half years with Procter and Gamble in manufacturing. So I had an idea of how it should go. Um, but one of the things that you find in the U S is that it's really difficult to find people who, um, at any sort of scale can do handcrafted leather. You find smaller shops and that sort of thing, but you know, Josh, not a lot of people grow up saying, you know what? My goal in life is to learn how to, how to sew leather, <laughs> how to cut leather. Right, right, right. It's like not there. So what I discovered was there is a, uh, just a, just a, uh, a, a huge hot spot for that in the middle of Mexico, in the state of Guanajuato. Uh, it's called the Bahio area um, in Leon, Mexico, where there are literally dozens of factories there. And after getting into the leather goods industry, I realized that, uh, that, that a lot, a huge percentage of the world's leather comes out of that area. They buy directly from the tanneries there. And some of the biggest shoe factories in the world are there. In fact, they call it the shoe, leather shoe capital of the world. Um, you know, you have people who have been working in leather since they were in their teens. And so we just decided to, you know, base our company in Texas and, you know, have that level of, of, of character and motivation, entrepreneurial spirit of Americans, you know, it's strong in, in our country. And then uh, do business both in Texas and in Mexico, um, and then do it for a, a lot of other leather goods brands as well that demand the same. That's interesting. And so, uh, did you start and build the factory in Mexico, or is that a, is that a partnership? How does how does that work? Uh, actually, it's a great question. I've started and and built two factories in Mexico. The first one for for Saddleback that I mentioned before was a great leather goods brand. Uh, built that one up, learned a lot, a lot of funny stories there. Um, and then when I sold that factory in 2014 and started my new one up, you know, about three or four months later, um, that was my second leather goods factory. So I've, I've kind of architected and built, you know, two leather goods factories, um, over the last 12, 13 years. That's fascinating. Cause I feel like we talk, I, I specifically interview so many people who have started some sort of manufacturing-based brand, and they're like, okay, we've either mm -hmm. built a facility in the States small, or mm -hmm. they outsourced to Asia somewhere. Yes. I'm curious to know what that process is like in really starting and building your own factory in yeah. a place like Mexico. Josh, I'll just tell you right now, maybe we have multiple podcasts here, because <laughs> that is a very interesting story. Um, you know, the difference between the U.S. and Mexico is, uh, again, kind of the history of working in leather. And most of the shops in the U.S. that do leather goods, most of them, not all, but most of them are very small. And especially when they want to scale, it's hard to do that. 
you know, at any larger volume because you've got to find uh, and, and put together not only the equipment you write, you need and do it in the right way, but you need to have the right people who love the work and they're excellent at it. And those things are more readily available in Mexico and some other places in the world. There are actually very, very few brands that own 100% of their supply chain beginning at the raw material. You know, we're not a tannery. We don't mold our hardware or weave our, our cotton canvas, but we do take it from those components and make leather goods. So there's very few brands in the world that own 100% of their sourcing, manufacturing, all the way up through their their distribution. Very, very few. Even some of the larger brands in the U.S. that are known for leather goods outsource either 100% or a significant portion of their manufacturing. Very few do it all in-house. So when when we were looking for a place, uh, Leon came up because of all the reasons I mentioned before and the fact that I thought 13, 14 years ago going into all this that Mexico would be a, just a great place to become the hub of leather goods manufacturing from the world. Uh, I was reading a study um, recently in the travel goods industry of like luggage and those sorts of pieces. And uh, almost 70% of the luggage and, and, and larger leather goods in the world sold last year were made in China, almost seven, seven out of 10. It's crazy. Uh, yeah. So it tells you how many people outsourced to China or India uh, and other places, Bangladesh and other things like that. And they go there only for one real reason. It, it's not the necessarily quality materials because they import all those materials into those countries to work with mostly. You know, they're bringing leathers from Mexico or Italy or Brazil. Um, but it's the it's the access to very cheap labor. And so now with what's happening in the world with you know tariffs and trade wars and all of that, the advantages of those areas of the country uh, have just really diminished, dwindled to almost nothing when it comes to a cost perspective. So a lot more people are moving to to Mexico and and maybe the U.S. It's, it's still hard to do it in the U.S. because of cost and then and then the uh, you know the access to really skilled handcrafted labor. But it, it looks like what's coming true. What I've hoped for so many years is that Mexico could become that North American location for the handcrafting of really high quality leather products. It's interesting because it's also more sustainable, right? Because products and materials yes. don't have to go as far. You don't have to ship them across the world. Absolutely. You know, 100% of the hides that we use in our company, Mission Mercantile, our business, and also for our other brands that we make for are U.S. steer hides. They, they come off, come out of the U.S. meat industry. It's a byproduct. And so it's obviously a lot simpler to, you know, get those raw hides down to Mexico uh, than it is to import, you know, Italian leather hides or U.S. or U.S. hides or, or whatever into China or Korea or the Dominican Republic or wherever you're going to have it manufactured. It's so much easier. And the reverse is also true, Josh. When we have finished product, it's so much easier to, you know, uh, move it from, you know, our factory in Mexico up to the U.S. in a matter of days rather than having to ship it or paying the high cost of air freight. 
from all these other countries to get it into the U.S. Plus, we have ready access to a lot of materials in Mexico that are domestic, uh, whether it's textiles or hardware and, of course, leather, exotic leathers, and the list goes on. That's really fascinating. Now, how long did it take you to get um, the factory set up in Mexico to the point where you were starting um, to produce product? The factory that I own now is called Blue Artisan Group. In fact, you can go to blueartisangroup.com and learn a little bit more about it. That one was much quicker than the first factory I had because obviously I'd been, you know, operating the other factory down there for, you know, five or six years previously. So the second one was pretty quick. We we spent several months just planning the business and deciding, you know, what our core values were and ethics and that sort of thing. And then once we got that decided, we acted, you know, very quickly. And uh, I had a uh, my first our first client lined up to manufacture for it was a company called White Wing Label that we have since actually acquired White Wing about four years ago and we now own that you know own that line and uh, we just started uh, very quickly manufacturing from them so we fa- we actually found our location in Mexico I think it was in about November and we started manufacturing in. January, maybe January, February, the next year. So just a couple of months later, because we knew what we were doing at that point, the, the very first factory that I, you know, architected and built and, and, and grew for the other leather goods company that I ran, that took a bit longer. Um, because, you know, we honestly didn't know what we were doing in Mexico at the time. And, uh, again, a lot of funny stories about the startup of a business in a foreign country and, and taking the best of what the company offers and then country offers and then also kind of injecting in there uh, what, you know, the best that American ingenuity and the way we do business and, and our high quality has to offer. That's really interesting. Now, when you started, did you have the vision of starting Mission Mercantile? Were you like, we'll be a supplier, a manufacturer for – um, many of the leather good companies out there had the vision of Mission Mercantile, but didn't execute on it initially. Um, the the first thing that I wanted to do was to manufacture for multiple brands, and and that's one of the reasons I actually sold my my interest in the factory to my my partner uh, Dave was because he didn't share that vision as much as I did, and so we I started up Blue Artisan Group. First, with the intention of manufacturing for remarkable brands who had remarkable products um, that they sold to their customers. And so that was the impetus of that. Um, then along later, about September, October of, of 2015 is when we launched the brand. So started up, started up the company primarily and almost solely to begin with, with the idea of manufacturing high quality, remarkable leather goods for multiple brands. And even to this day, uh, our own brand mission mercantile is just a fraction of what we make in our, in our shop, you know, for all the other brands, we now make literally thousands of SKUs for different leather goods brands. So we've learned a lot through that too. Did you have the relationships with these brands that you make for, or did you develop them over time? How did, how did that all sort of come to be? 
Ah, Kyle, wow, another great question. Um, very few relationships initially. Again, um, uh, you know, with the, with the brothers that own White Wing Label, um, uh, Blake and Bryce Leggett, great guys. Um, I had met them when I owned the other factory before. But other than that, uh, just a few other relationships. Uh, we had um, a few of the brands that were manufacturing in my first factory move over with us because they just they just wanted to come with us and thought we'd do a great job for them. But kind of seeded the cloud of those 17 or 18 brands that we make for now, seeded the cloud with like just two or three, couple of, to begin with, mostly smaller. And then through the years of building relationships and serving people and helping people wherever we can, um, our reputation has just grown. And so now we make for some of the for some of the larger leather goods brands in the world, we make for brands like Pendleton and Lucchese and Tecovis and um, Buffalo Jackson and Moran Giles and King Ranch and just quite a, a number of other ones. A uh, brand new brand that we just brought on board that we are so excited about working with. They're quintessential leather goods, American leather goods brand, J.W. Hume. So um, we're, we're just excited about these relationships and these incredible brands that, that we've been blessed to work with. That's fascinating. Uh, what would you say are um, some of the things that you do differently with Mission Mercantile and just the manufacturing of your leather goods that say maybe others don't? Um. The core of our business is about strength of character and faith, you know, doing doing hard, tough things that other people won't or can't. Uh, I it, It's authentic with me and with us. I mean, I grew up in a, on a farm in South Georgia. Unremarkable place, just working hard, working hard in my dad's, you know, hardware, mercantile business, working on the farm with our animals, you know, cows and pigs, and we raised goats and all sorts of stuff growing up. And, and so I just had an appreciation, you know, for that way of life and, and the animals that we raised and, and we took great care of. In fact, uh, you know, something that a lot of people don't know is my wife's pet name for me is Tractor Boy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, I, I grew up just learning to work. My, my dad did his, you know, mercantile business, you know, 7A to 5P and then came out to the farm and we did our second, you know, five or six hours of work on the farm. Had a couple hundred acres there that we that we managed and, 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 and worked. Later that became about a thousand acres with some farmland my, my mom inherited from her dad. Um, but we just... We just worked. And one of the things that makes us different, I think, is that we believe in doing things right the first time. We believe in making things of very high quality that last, that are handcrafted by artisans. So all the brands we make for demand that type of work, not just kind of high fashion, fashion forward, fast fashion, but, but you know, products that are made with organic materials like leather and cotton canvas and metals and other textiles and that sort of thing. And so, you know, I just have a very deep personal 
experience and relationship. Again, as I mentioned before, my family goes back 150 years of being merchants and just taking great care of our, our customers. And, it, and it's just very personal and authentic and, and deep with me and the, the people that work in our businesses. I think that um, that's a very, it's a great way to start a business, right? It's, it, having mm. a passion behind the products that you make and knowing that whatever it is that you make, you want to make sure it's the best sets you up very well. To be successful. Yes. I, I will share one other thing, Josh, that you just made me think of is that out of all the things I could do, I was a business coach for, for 18 years or so. You know, I worked with Procter & Gamble and manufacturing. I spent six and a half years in high tech and I've run companies and turnarounds. The reason I, I moved into leather and then after selling my first factory and moving back into leather was just I realized is my passion for it. I just love working with the materials and it's, it's important if you're doing it just to make money or you're doing it just to, I don't know, it's just not enough. It's got to be deeper than that. You're, you're so right. And so many people look at their jobs as just a paycheck, which I understand. I totally get it. But <clears throat> if you're going to start a business and go through all the trials and tribulations of it, it's got to be more than just the money, right? That motivates oh. you. It is. I mean, I've read so many studies and through my business coaching for years, just realized that persistence is maybe one of the biggest virtues, <laughs> maybe is a curse too of the entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know it. You're you're an entrepreneur. It's just it's just sticking with it and then and then learning from what you're doing. You know, business is a lab and and doing more of the things that works and stop doing the stuff that doesn't. That's so true. Now, over the years with, with Mission Mercantile, what would you say have been some of the hardest parts about getting the brand off the ground? Um, well, you know, it's it's interesting. Very few things are easy, right? Um, you know, your, your, your motivation and your passion can take you so far, but what really comes down to is staying the course, I think, in what matters most. So, and then pivoting, especially now, right? We've all had to pivot a bit. Uh, some things have, I'll be quite honest, gotten a lot easier, I think, with the pandemic. And some things have gotten a lot harder as well. So some of the hardest parts, I think, are figuring out, I mean, Stephen Covey said it this way. He said, some things matter, other things matter more. But what matters most is to be able to tell the difference. So stay in the course on what matters most and being honest with yourself about the things that aren't working and stopping it as soon as you can. And then learning what the, you know, I've got my air quotes up now, what are the right things to do and to be and, and trying to do them even when it hurts, taking great care of your customers, a huge one, even when it hurts. I mean, we, we had, we strive to do what we call mythical customer care. And, and not only with our, you know, Mission Mercantile branded customers direct to consumer, but also with our, our factory, with our brands that we work for. And we will do the right thing regardless of what that thing is. And sometimes you just realize that the more it hurts, the more right it is to do. And just not getting distracted with all the other things. I think that's probably another thing about hard part about starting your business is not 
not getting overly distracted with things that don't matter as much, doing the essential things and staying focused on it, being, you know, being a foot wide and a mile deep rather than a mile wide and a foot deep. We talk about that all the time in our business. So I, I think those are the hardest things. Everything else you'll learn early on in your business, you're going to focus, you know, almost everything you're doing in sales and marketing, right? Cause you got to build a name for yourself. And, and then until you get probably into well into six figures, maybe into early seven figures, that's going to be where your primary focus is, I think, in sales and marketing, and then putting together systems that makes it as easy as possible uh, to ship it, you know, um, to get it out the door and then take great care of your customers. I think those are the key things. What would you say have been some of the biggest mistakes that you've made up to this point? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a, that's a funny question. I love how you couch it as biggest mistakes because that kind of starts to help you filter them a little bit. I made a lot of of biggest ones, right? (laughs) No doubt you make, you make mistakes. And, you know, I, I think about this, uh, there are, there's, there's a lot of people who believe that as an entrepreneur, uh, it's it's about making mistakes and you got to learn from your mistakes, which is true, but don't ever intentionally go out there and make mistakes just to kind of get them out of the way or, or to say that's my key to success is learning from my mistakes. So one, don't intentionally make mistakes if you can. Be, be thoughtful. Um, I think some of the biggest mistakes, even after years of doing this, is is just I've learned for myself that I'm a very committed and loyal person. I love people. I love relationships. I love customer relationship, vendor relationships, and we're always looking to go deep. And I've just learned over the time, and I've 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 gotten a lot better. Is that sometimes I I might stay the course a bit too long because I am a huge encourager and believer that, that people can be great because, you know, you never do business with, with businesses, you do business with people. And so, you know, I've looked back over the history and I've learned that I've stayed the course too long on some things, you know, um, or I wanted to help a bit too much. So, you know, you have guardrails in place, you know, there to help you with that. But that's probably some of the the biggest ones. I I never say the big mistakes I've made is by placing bets on people or on relationships. Um, Maybe just stay in the course a little bit too long sometimes when it's clear that maybe we have, you know, different agendas, let's say. For sure. Now, what would you say, um, what advice would you give to someone that wanted to start a business whether it was in the outdoor space, manufacturing space, or just really a business in general? Uh, Listen, be a learner. Um, You know, they always talk about hearing. You hear, but you also got to listen. So I would say, you know, find a good mentor mentors, and they're out there. Kind of filter them down, narrow them down a bit flush out their opinions, you know, sit at their feet, ask questions whenever you can. And then when you, you listen to what they have to say, then decide on whether you're going to do something with it or not. Don't sit on the fence. Um, you know, your business is only in two states, I think, growing or dying. And so when you, you seek out advice, 
you got to listen to it and then decide to do something with it. And when you do and, and you make up your mind, make up your mind, be a, be a prudent risk taker, act on it. So I think that's one key thing. And then as I think I mentioned before, try to be a, go a foot wide and a mile deep, not a mile wide and a foot deep. So narrow the things you're going to focus on and, and act on them as soon as you can and then move on to the next thing and then do the next thing. Do, do try to do more things that work and stop doing as quickly as the things that, that don't and, and realize that, you know, life and business is a lab, get in there and experiment be a prudent risk taker when you have mentors and other entrepreneurs around you and you can bounce things off of them, either in a mastermind or, or through some coaching or whatever, you're going to feel a lot more confident than trying to do it in a vacuum where you just don't know. So I've always sought that out and uh, it's worked well for me and I love giving back and helping out wherever I can too. Where do you see Mission Mercantile in the next year, five years, ten years down the road? Well, man, that's a good dovetail question off of the one you just asked. Is that, you know, if you're a foot wide and a mile deep, then, you know, how far is your outlook, right, or not? And so I resist the temptation to go out too far. I mean, I I developed a, a, a process before I call the simple uh, strategic plan, and you know, what that plan says is basically always look out about your next 60 to 90 days. So look out your next three months and then your next six months after that to see what you need to be focused on doing right now to really make the needle move in your business. Okay. So whether it's launching a new leather goods product or implementing a new email system or deciding I'm going to focus first on on Facebook or Google Ads and not the other one until I learn something from it. Whatever you do, look at the, just the net, what's right in front of you right now, where you can shine the light and see. And then after that, have an idea of where you want to be maybe, you know, 10 or 12 months from now. You know, after I implement that and, getting, and get that going, where do I want that to be taking me? So you, So you're not just walking with your head down all the time. I think, Josh, unless you're a very large business, and I've worked for some of the largest in the world, Procter & Gamble, you know, it's a Fortune 20 business, very big business. Unless you're like a P&G or a larger company like that, you know, Google or Apple or whatever, I think as the, as the entrepreneur, don't lose your way by looking out too far. I think that might cause you to perhaps not act as decisively on some very important things right in front of you right now that need your attention and action. And then I think the other thing is always stay true, true to your uh, moral, you know, relationship and business purpose compass. Always stay true to that and make sure you're not getting off track with that. So don't spread yourself too thin and, and don't get on off track with what really drives you and what you're all about. I think that's really good advice, and it's it it goes to show all of the different things that you need to be focusing on, aware of as you build a business, right? Like people always say, mm -hmm. you wear all the hats when you're building a brand. Um, 
and like I, I, I like associate it to like learning a new sport or activity of some kind when you're first mm-hmm. learning it and someone's teaching you or coaching you they're like all right you gotta remember this and this and this and also that and as you're trying to think of all of those things and you're trying that new thing you're like I, I can't focus on all these things oh what isn't that true gosh that's so true um you just made me think of I mean, in a, in a high school, in high school and in college, a little while I was a, I was a four sport athlete in high school, right? And then I played some sports in college too. And that moment, Josh, you just mentioned where you know you're teaching, you know, what's your stroke or 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 what your, you know, how you're supposed to approach a block or, you know, sh- shoot your shot for consistency. Basketball was my big sport. You're, you're learning, and then there's a point where it becomes natural where you stop. Exactly. Thinking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you're in your zone. And and the biggest problem athletes often have is when they start overthinking it, right? And sometimes it doesn't take much to do that. I think business is very true. You've got to get out there and learn the basic concepts. And then it's got to get to the point where it becomes natural for you and also natural for you to have the right people in your business helping you in things that you're not that great at. Um, I... I've learned a lot about business and I can do a lot of things. I mean, I can do accounting and I can do design and I can do engineering and I can do selling and marketing. I love doing those things, but I've got this motto about myself, Josh, that says just because I can doesn't mean I should. And so I want people around me as your business grows who are better than you and excellent at marketing or communicating or designing product or, you know, taking care of your accounting or whatever. I think the smart person realizes that just because I can do something doesn't mean I should be doing it. It's so true. It's so true. And and to continue the sports analogies, right? You're only as strong as your, your weakest link, right? And um, That's right. With the business, it's the same thing, and and like you said, you need to surround yourself with people who are, who have strengths where your weaknesses are, because it allows you to rise as a business right. together. And listen to them, you know, listen to them and get out of their way. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. <laughs> it's so very true. <laughs> it, it's amazing sometimes that we hire people to help us or whatever, and. We, we don't necessarily listen to them, and then we're always meddling. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, that's just learning on our part. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. Amen, brother. For sure. Now, for anyone listening to this podcast, um, in the month of August, you can actually enter to win um, some product um, from Mission Mercantile. We're, we're giving away a duffel and a travel bag. Um, so if you're interested in winning, just head over to readyeddy.com for your chance to win, and with that, Chuck, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast, share your story, the story of Mission Mercantile, and I'm definitely excited to see all the things you guys do in the future. Josh, thanks so much, man. It's been a it's been fun, pleasure, and I'm honored. Thank you. And I love what Ready Yeti's doing. You guys are amazing. If you enjoyed today's podcast episode, then we would be incredibly appreciative if you could log on to iTunes and leave us a quick review. This really helps us get noticed by other podcast listeners like yourself. And if you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, then please share it along. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Ready Eddie Podcast. We'll catch you guys next week.